Okay. Happy New Year's. Today is January the 3rd, 2012. And uh, Thursday night, we're going to take down all the decorations. So if you want to be here and help, it will go much quicker than putting them up. It usually does. But we still need help, so keep that in mind. Okay, let's prepare ourselves in our usual fashion. We'll have a few moments of silent prayer, the option of rebound if necessary. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for this time we can be here to focus on your word. Every day of every year, we need your word more and more. And we pray that you will help us to stand firm, to be able to uh, give an answer for the hope that is in us and accurately give doctrine to those who so desperately need it. We can only do that if we fill our souls with your word, and we pray that you will help us do that by the ministry of the Holy Spirit, for we pray it in Christ's name. Amen. We are in getting the gospel right, and we just finished James chapter 2, and we started another area that we're going to be in getting the gospel right, which I have just simply entitled Faith Alone. When we're talking about faith alone and we're talking about the gospel, we have our finger on the pulse of the most basic fundamental belief of the Christian faith. This is where the battle occurs. Because by far, most of the people that you will come in contact with do not believe in faith alone for salvation. They have various ways of adding something to it, but they always add something to it. And nothing less than our own eternal destiny depends upon whether we understand this, whether we accept it, or whether we uh, reject it. So uh, we've already gone through uh, much of this, but I think I'll just start with a very familiar verse to everyone. That would be Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. And you'll see on the board that I have underlined the gift of God. That's in Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. That's what salvation is called here. For by grace are you saved, you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not as a result of works that no one should boast. That word there, that, is a matter of contention. There are those that say this word refers back to faith. But we know it can't refer to faith because faith is in the feminine gender and that is in the neuter gender. And it is somewhat ellipsized here, meaning you have to go back to the previous verses to see the context of what that is referring to. And the that is referring to the entire package of salvation. Yes. The first one. Actually, <coughs> in this translation, it says, not a result of works. This has that, but most translations have less any man should boast. Uh -huh. So, um, and that just substantiates 
if you think that it is referring to faith, is coming in the back door of saying that this is part of Reformed theology, part of Calvinism that would say uh, you cannot, we do not have a free will. God has essentially programmed us. He has chosen those that uh, Christ died for. And you don't have the ability to have faith in the gospel, so God has to give you that faith. And they go to this verse to substantiate it. Grammar won't substantiate it, nor does the context, nor does systematic theology or grace of any way, any, any type. We also have Romans 6.23, For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Now we have two places here where we're seeing that salvation is called a gift. So we had the <coughs> definition of gift. This is from the Merriam-Webster's Collegiate Dictionary, 10th edition. It's a noun, something voluntarily transferred by one person to another without compensation or payment. So there are no strings attached. You cannot work for it. If any work is required to receive something, then how can a gift be considered anything but payment or compensation? And you remember I asked you this, what does an employee receive at the end of the week for the work he has done, a paycheck or a gift? We all recognize, of course, that's a gift. I mean, a, a paycheck, that's something that uh, you have earned. And then I gave the example of a, a child getting a bicycle for his birthday and upon giving the bicycle to the son and happy birthday, present him with a bill. That just does not register. That's easy for us to understand. Paul puts it this way, but if, but if it is by grace, that is if salvation is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace is no longer grace. You see, you cannot have grace plus works because they are antithetical. If it's grace, you can't have works, and if it's works, you can't have grace. They're mutually exclusive with regards to eternal salvation. Romans 4, 4 through 6. Now, to the one who works, his wage is not reckoned as favor, or that same word could be grace. <coughs> and I think we looked that up, and it's charis. But as what is due... But to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is reckoned or credited or imputed as righteousness. Just as David also speaks of the blessing upon the man to whom God reckons righteousness apart from works. Now that kind of sets us up for where we're starting this evening. <coughs> this is lesson 24. This is our first Bible class of 2012. Salvation can be a gift or it can be a payment for work done, but it cannot be both. It can be a gift if it, it can't be a gift if it obligates the receiver. Since the Bible calls a gift, calls it a gift, works cannot be associated with it in any way whatsoever because these are mutually exclusive. Titus 3, 5, he saved us not on the basis of works which we have done, in righteousness, but according to his mercy, by the washing of regeneration and the renewing of the Holy Spirit. Does that sound familiar? That was your memory verse before the one we had Sunday. And I don't even think I mentioned 
that Sunday. We had communion. There were other things that we were covering. Galatians 2.16, Nevertheless, knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but through faith in Christ Jesus, even we have believed in Christ Jesus that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law, since by the works of the law shall no flesh be justified. <laughs> I like that verse because he's nailed it down about every way you can. How can anyone read that verse and still dogmatically claim that salvation must be obtained or maintained by works. It is impossible to acquire eternal life by works. It can only be acquired as a gift from God through faith in Jesus Christ. That is the heart of the gospel right there. It is also impossible to maintain eternal life by works. Anything that is eternal does not need maintenance, right? I mean, if you, if you had something, if you had a water heater that was eternal, or a car, if you could have such a thing, the price would be astronomical. You would never have to worry about maintaining it whatsoever. And the fact is, we live on a planet that has uh, gravity, and that gravity works against everything that's on the planet. We all... Uh, feel the effects of gravity, do we not? I'm not talking about standing here and it holds us to the ground. I'm talking about when we look into the mirror. I've, I've made my own axiom on this and nobody pays any attention to it and nobody cares about it, but I thought it was pretty good. If you get in a fight with gravity, you're going to lose. And so it is with everything. Everything needs maintenance because everything wears out. What is that, the second law of thermodynamics? Things aren't getting better. They're getting worse. They're wearing out. Even this universe, this planet, is wearing out. So if something is eternal, it does not need maintenance. And that's what eternal life is. It is eternal. Still people come up with ways to insert works into God's perfect plan of grace. Here is one wacky phrase someone came up with that sounds cute but makes no sense whatsoever and it contradicts itself. We're going to look at this and study it a bit because, well, let me read it first. This is the phrase. We are saved by faith alone, but the faith that saves is never alone. Now, this is the mantra for a lot of people. A lot of people use this phrase in order to prove that you're saved by faith alone. Yeah, that's right, but you're also saved by works. Uh, this, this phrase came into being around the 17th century when the uh, <coughs> Reformation began. And it was really, uh, it was came into being because the Catholic Church was at odds with those who were with her in the, Reformation, like Luther and Zwingli and Calvin. And the Catholic Church would level accusations against those who said that it's sola, sola scriptura. That means we go solely by scripture. Or sole fide, meaning it's solely faith. And the Catholic Church, of course, is not on that page whatsoever. 
And this is when Luther, for the first time, who was a Catholic, started reading the Bible and started, for the first time, seeing that the beliefs that the Catholic Church held was at odds with what the Bible said. That's when he went to the uh, church in Wittenberg and nailed his, what was it, 95 thesis on the church house door. That was, and he, he understood that it's faith alone. Well, that worked for a while, but finally what happened was there were people who, cl who claimed that they were saved because they believe in Jesus Christ, but they lived a life that would embarrass hell. I mean, they were just worse than unbelievers. <coughs> so the Catholic Church would come and they would say, how can you possibly be faith alone? You think this person is saved? Look at them. Now, <coughs> things developed slowly, centuries and centuries. It took uh, people to create a vocabulary and come up with the doctrines that we take for granted today. For instance, the doctrine of the Trinity. We say the doctrine of the Trinity. We have a word for it. But it took centuries and centuries for them to struggle with this and have councils and finally come up with something that we accept today that's known as the Trinity. And it's the same in a lot of uh, areas that they had to struggle and come up with finally. <coughs> they would debate for, like I said, centuries, and they would come up with something. Well, in, this, in the 17th uh, century, this was new. This was novel. And they didn't have <coughs> the the benefit of looking back on history and have uh, the tools that we have today to look at. And so the, the, the reformers thought, <coughs> well, we're just getting smashed by the Catholics. I mean, they are, they are undermining this truth that we think we found in the Bible. What can we do? And rather than standing firm and saying, well, look, all believers are, are saved sinners anyway, and it's not the works that is going to prove anything because we all retain a, a, a old sin nature. So what they did was come up with this phrase. And it, what it is is a back door to come in and say that salvation is by works. So when the Catholics would point at this person, look at this person here, horrible, despicable person, and you say he's saved? And he says, well, he's not really saved because he's just professing faith. Because salvation is by faith alone, but, the faith, uh, but, but that faith is never alone. It always is accompanied by works. And so they would allege that these people really weren't even saved to begin with. You see how this came into being. <coughs> you may think this is just a little trite saying. It's no big deal, but it has a lot of weight to it. I was at the uh, conference in Houston at the Schaefer Conference at uh, West Houston Bible Church, and Fred R. Lybrand, which is the author of this book, <coughs> gave a presentation on this phrase. <coughs> Excuse me. This whole book is about that phrase and all of the repercussions that come from it. And the reason you can write a whole book about a phrase like this, <coughs> excuse me, is because this could be the mantra of all those who are trying to add something other than faith to salvation. And by this statement, they think that it covers it. But let's look at it. I, a lot of what I'm <coughs> excuse me, going to present, I, I got out of this book. 
Countless people have used the phrase in order to make works a requirement of salvation. John Calvin put it this way. This is in uh, John Calvin. Some of you may be familiar with his Institutes of the Christian Religion. And, <coughs> excuse me. And he said, quote, It is therefore faith alone which justifies, and yet the faith which justifies is not alone. Those who are justified by true faith prove their uh, justification by obedience and good works, not by a bare imaginary semblance of faith. So this is just a way that Calvin was saying uh, it's not by faith alone. It's actually by works. There's no other way you can slice it because he is trying to justify and prove that someone um, is saved or not saved based on their works. What this does is put the, shine the light when a person believes in Jesus Christ, not on the object of the faith, but on the faith itself. And they would say, see, these people didn't have a true faith. They were not truly saved. They may have thought that they had the right kind of faith or enough faith, but it was a spurious faith. And how do you know that it was a spurious faith? Because it didn't have the works. If it was true faith, then it would have the works. Aren't you glad you understand uh, that that's a crock? <coughs> R.C. Sproul, under, uh, with, uh, in his uh, book, uh, Grace Unknown, <coughs> says the following. The reformers were attempting to be consistent with their doctrine that an individual is saved by grace through faith alone and yet also hold that works must be the natural, inevitable, and often immediate outworking in a saved person's experience. The cliché, now when, when I refer to, <coughs> excuse me, the cliché, we're talking about that phrase or that sentence. Let's look at it again so you'll remember it. We are saved by faith alone, but the faith that saves is never alone. Now, he's talking about that when he says the cliche. Um, the cliche is contrary to the law of contradiction. The law of contradiction states divine revelation involves intelligible sequences of information not an incoherent and self-contradictory chaos. The fact is that whatever violates the law of contradiction cannot be considered revelation. The God of the biblical revelation is the God of reason, not ultimate irrationality. All he does is rational. To say that salvation is by faith alone, but the faith that saves is never alone, how can anyone not see that that's contradictory? That would be, be like saying, anyone who applies to this university will be accepted, but only those with a four-point grade average will be accepted. If you heard that, what would you do? Wouldn't you kind of cock your head and say, what? I mean, it's obviously contradictory on its face, and so is this phrase, and yet this phrase is is um, what a lot of people uh, use in order to thwart the grace, I mean, the faith alone 
principle. Just, to, just, I'm just wondering, how many of you have ever heard anyone say this phrase before? Okay, quite a few. All right, I know I have several times. Consistency is a negative test of truth. What is logically contradictory cannot be true. A denial of the law of contradiction would make truth an error equivalent. Hence, in effect, it destroys truth. When reduced to its most basic form, the phrase is saying that faith alone equals faith not alone. I mean, that's what it's saying. It's faith alone that saves, but the faith that saves is never alone. So it's saying faith is alone, but faith is not alone. Is that not contradictory? <coughs> and the Bible does not contradict itself. Unless faith is alone when it justifies, justification cannot reasonably be claimed to come by faith alone. Think of that. I'll say it again. Unless faith is alone when it justifies, justification cannot reasonably be, came, <coughs> be claimed to come by faith alone. I mean, if, if there's something else involved, you can't say it's faith alone. Faith and works are mutually exclusive. Faith is not of works, and works are not of faith. One cannot be both justified by faith separated from works, and at the same time be justified by faith connected to works. We are justified either by faith alone or faith not alone, but not by both. Now this should already start ringing bells in your mind about what we just went over in James, because James was essentially saying the same thing. When he was saying that in, in verse 24, that let's go to James 24 so you'll um, have it in your mind. You'll see the parallel here. Yes, James 2.24. Your Bibles should all just about fall open to James chapter 2. You see that a man is justified by works and not, I hope you have written in there between not and by, and not justified by faith alone. And here's the thing. You cannot be justified by faith alone and be also justified by works, and that's not what James is claiming. James is claiming that a man is justified by works. That's one type of justification before man, which is experiential, and not justified by faith alone, which is the other way of being justified before God by faith. So you can't have both. You cannot connect faith and works and come up with salvation because they're...
<clears throat> so you have you understand that faith and works are mutually exclusive and to combine them and say both are necessary to come up with salvation is a huge contradiction and James is not saying that he is saying that there are two types of justification unless faith is alone when it justifies justification cannot be reasonably claimed to come by faith alone faith is not works and works is not faith it's easy to see how someone would link these verses in James with the cliche and come up with a works-based salvation. James 2.14 What use is it, my brethren, if a man says he has faith but he has no works, can that save him? See, that is implying that when you look at it at its face, if you think that this is referring to a, a salvific salvation, then that would substantiate the claim of that cliche. I'm sure glad I sure glad I have this and don't have to hold this thing all the time. And also in James 2.24, 2, we just looked at the same thing. Uh, you see that a man is justified by works and not justified by faith alone. Two justifications. You cannot add grace plus works and come up with anything because they are mutually exclusive. It's like trying to get two magnets and put them into the wrong end and have them stick together. You can't do it. R.C. Sproul again. This is a quote from R.C. Sproul. Uh, this is from MacArthur's uh, book, I think, Justification by Faith Alone. Those who possess saving faith necessarily, inevitably, and immediately begin to manifest the fruits of the faith, which are works of obedience. Endurance in the faith is a condition for future salvation. Only those who endure in faith will be saved in eternity. You couldn't put it more plain than that. And what he's talking about here is he's saying that you can take faith and works. In fact, faith by itself is defunct. It cannot save because of the cliche. The faith that say, uh, what, what is it? The faith, uh, uh, we are saved by faith alone, but the faith that saves is never alone. Anybody that buys into that is going to come up with the same thing that R.C. Sproul has come up with. The faith that saves us is always alone. You know, is alone. But the faith that saves is never alone. You have to add works to it. The cliche, it is therefore faith alone which justifies, and yet the faith which justifies is not alone, lives or dies by James 2. The people who would substantiate or try to back up their claim that this cliche is true and you've got to have faith plus works to be eternally saved, where is the go-to scripture in the whole Bible that they're going to go to? James chapter 2. Aren't you glad we went spent that time in James chapter 2? I mean, you might as well inculcate that 
understand it, put it into long-term memory, and be ready to explain it to people because this is where people go. And we're going to go to a few other scriptures that um, some people try to hang their their hat on with regards to that. But that's the go-to verses there. So, um, and, and I could have come up with a lot more uh quote with regards to those who think that works are necessary. You see, one reason this is so important because the ba- we are right in the middle of the fray with regards to what the entire New Testament is about. Even re- really the whole Bible, but specifically the New Testament. Because when you read the New Testament, there is warning after warning after warning. The message of the New Testament is not salvific. Now, you might want to throw rocks at me for that, but the Scriptures bear that out. I'm not saying that the information on how to be saved is not there. Certainly it is. There are Scriptures that, have, that are specifically aimed at the Gospel, but most of them are not. Most of them, the great majority of verses, are aimed at believers who are hearers only and they're not doers of the Word. They don't recognize that there's another justification that God, uh, that we have to uh, adhere to, and that's being justified before man by our works. They don't get it. They, uh, they try to make everything salvific. Uh, I heard that there's a, uh, what, what did we talk about, uh, Michael Vidal? What was it, the green-lettered Bible? Is that what we were talking about? Is that You heard that before? Or something something about the green and someone went through there, and somehow, I don't know if they highlighted in green, I just heard this, but what they do is try to take, differentiate between what is salvific and what's experiential. And so they went and highlighted it some way. But <clears throat> your task, as you read the Bible, anytime you go to any scripture, your radar is out. You have to determine right off the bat, is this talking about eternal salvation or is this talking about experiential executing the Christian way of life which is it because if you don't get those two correct you're going to wind up subscribing to this because there's a lot of scriptures if you try to make them salvific they add works to it now you're in the then you're in the mire which a lot of people uh, get to that point so there are other passages used uh, uh, by some to allege that works are necessary for eternal salvation Let's look at one. Let's go to uh, Titus chapter 1, verse 10 through 16. We don't have to go to John. See, if we hadn't gone to John, that's where I'd be going right now because that's the main go-to verses they go to. But there's several others. Where do you find Titus? Well, you find it where all the T's are. First and second Thessalonians, first and second Timothy, then what? Titus. All, isn't that nice? They arranged all the T's together there for us. So if it's a T, it's going to be grouped right there together. Okay, Titus. we're going to start with verse 10. The pivotal verse is in verse 16. Titus 1.10 For there are many rebellious men, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision. Now, what you might do, I, I didn't do it, but I wish I would have, just underlined some of these uh, descriptions. Rebellious, empty talkers, 
deceivers. We've already got those three right off the bat in the first first uh, verse. When it's, it's saying, especially those of the circumcision, he's talking about Jews there, of the Jewish, who must be silenced because they are upsetting whole families. And some say that the families here is actually talking about churches because the a, a church is essentially a, a family. They met, they met in homes. Teaching things they should not teach for the sake of sordid gain. So these people, whoever it's we talking, talking about, are rebellious. They're empty talkers. They're deceivers. They're upsetting people and teaching things they should not teach. And when you see sordid gain here, that's getting paid for teaching false doctrine. Getting paid for uh, teaching is legitimate. We've gone over that before. But not so <coughs> if it's <coughs> excuse me, false doctrines. The King James says, calls it filthy lucre. <laughs> How can you you can't even say filthy lucre without it being detestable, can you? Let's go to the grocery store and get some filthy lucre. No, that doesn't sound right. Okay. Uh twelve. One of themselves, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. So he, where was Titus sent? Well, he was sent to the Isle of Crete. And this is a, one of the prophets of the Cretans says they're always liars and beasts. And evil. You know, when I was a teenager, if you were really trying to put someone down, you would today you would I guess you would say you're not cool, but back then you would say you're miserable, you're repulsive, you're repugnant. And what come out of my mouth from time to time and others would say, You're just a Cretan. Do you ever hear that before? Call them Cretans? I had no idea what a Cretan was. I thought it was somebody from out of space. This is where it comes from. A Cretan had a very bad reputation of being a liar. Verse 13, this testimony is true, the testimony of this prophet who was a Cretan. For this cause, reprove them severely that they may be sound in the faith. Ah, we get our first clue here who these people are, don't we? I'm going to tell you right now, as you will see, all these things that are going to be... that. That, that Paul is uh, describing, these people that he's describing, are believers. And that's where everybody gets off base. Can a believer be a rebellious and empty talker and a deceiver, upsetting people and uh, teaching false doctrine and getting paid for it? They're liars. And he says, for this cause, reprove them severely. You don't reprove unbelievers you certainly don't reprove them so that uh, they will be sound in the faith how can an unbeliever be sound in the faith when he's an unbeliever sounds like they were at one time sound in the faith but then they got off and now they need to be reproved severely
verse 14, not paying attention to Jewish myths and commandments of men who turn away from the truth. Look at that. Underline these things so you'll remember them. Um, Reprove them severely that they may be sound in the faith. And then they should not be paying attention to commandments of men who turn away from the truth. If you turn away from the truth, it pretty much presupposes that you were facing the truth if you have to turn away from it, do you not? To the pure, all things are pure, but to those who are defiled and unbelieving. Oh, mercy, look at that. Can believers be defiled? But a lot of people look at this and say, Look, unbelieving. This has to be unbelievers. Well, let me ask you something. Are you a believer? Have you never doubted anything ever of a spiritual nature? Come on now. Don't be straining. You don't have to strain. We're talking about unbelief. Is there anything that you had to... Uh, have a hard time swallowing? This is not talking unbelief in hearing the gospel. None of this has anything to do with the gospel and the eternal life. This has everything to do with the same people that James was talking about. He is describing the believers that James had to deal with. This is what, this is what they were like, essentially. They heard the gospel. They were hearers of the word, but they didn't do anything. They didn't have any works. And you know what? I didn't emphasize this before, but if you don't have works, you're going to be on the other side of the fence. You're not just neutral. There's no neutral ground. So if you're not, having, if you're not producing divine good, it means that you're probably full of mental attitude sins, and you're going to be guilty of everything that this is describing here, and it's talking about believers. So he says, To the pure, all things are pure, but to those who are defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure, but both their mind and their conscience are defiled. Can that happen? Can the mind and a conscience of a believer be defiled? That's who he's talking to, believers. Now look at this, verse 16. They profess to know God. And by the way, that know there in the Greek is the perfect active indicative of oida. Perfect tense. That means they knew God in the past and the results go on and on. They, prof- they profess to know God. And what I'm saying is the perfect active indicative is saying And they did know God, or they do know God. But let's stop there for just a second. When we're talking about knowing God, isn't there? Can't that know mean more than one thing? Do unbelievers know God? Well, you can say, yeah, they know of Him. When a person believes in the Lord Jesus Christ, does he know God then? 
I see somebody going like this. Well, that's a pretty good answer. He knows something about God. He knows that God sent His Son, died for His sins, and if he believes in him because of God's grace, he can have eternal life. That's knowing God a little bit. You know, that's, no, that's enough, though, isn't it, to get into heaven, this faith alone? These people knew God in that sense. How many people do you know, and I don't, I'm not trying to get you to judge anyone, but how many people do you know that you would say are believers in the Lord Jesus Christ but they don't know squat about the Bible. I would say those people do not know God. Not in that sense. See, again, we're seeing a two-pronged thing here. To believe the gospel is to know God in a sense. You know something about God. But that's not the whole package, is it? God wants us to know Him intimately. He wants us to know Him so well that we can, t we can trust Him without equivocation. We can take His promises and faith rest with them. He wants us to be able to stand firm among a sea of unbelievers who are telling us that we're weird, we're fanatic, we're crazy, we don't know what we're talking about. This is the 21st century. Well, we, anybody that doesn't subscribe to evolution is a kook. And we can stand there without any equivocation and say that's not my God that's not how he acts that's not what he needs to do that's knowing God in another way isn't it so we're talking about two types of knowing and I'm telling you when he says that they profess to know God they knew him at salvation as far as the gospel is concerned and I'm telling you, that's the only kind of knowing it takes to go to heaven. But it's not the only kind of knowing that it takes to be rewarded in heaven. It's not the only kind of knowing that's going to give you peace, security, confidence, and courage, and everything that people want. You don't get it if that's all you've got. You've got to have a, another type of knowledge. And that's, of course, the experiential sanctification type of knowledge. So they profess to know God which they did in that sense, but their, deeds did, uh, uh, but their deeds, by their deeds, they deny him. If their deeds deny him, does that mean that they are bound for the lake of fire? Have your deeds always, or let me put it this way, let me, have you ever done a deed that by your deeds would be defiant to God? Have you ever done that? Have you ever got angry? Have, have you ever judged anyone? Have you ever gossiped about anyone? Have you ever not trusted God? Have you ever worried? Those are all defiant things to God. So they profess to know God. But by their deeds, they deny him. Now, let me say something before I go on here. In verse 16, um, I said that you cannot... Remember when I told you that we cannot judge if a person is saved, eternally saved or not, by their behavior. Remember that? Because we can't see their faith. And we might see their works. And no matter what their works may be, doesn't necessarily condemn them or does it redeem them as far as eternal salvation is concerned. 
But what if their works, what if they don't have any works? What if they are horrible people? They're the kind like James says, go and be fed and go and be uh, warm. And don't give them clothes and don't give them food and so forth. That kind of believer. If they're that kind, you can know one thing for sure. James knew it for sure. These people did not know Christ beyond the gospel. If they did, they would have the works. Now, a lot of people are doing all these works. Maybe the same things that people confuse and say, look, these people must be spiritual giants because they're right on the beam. Look at all this, see? And that doesn't prove anything either. My point in all this is, listen to this. You can tell more by what a person says than what they do as to whether they're saved or not. Now, it's not a 100% guarantee, foolproof way of knowing that. But if somebody says that, uh, well, you know, my, I thought my husband was saved, but he ran out with this woman, and he, he started uh, uh, heavily drinking, and he did this, that, and the other thing, that doesn't make me in the slightest think that he might not be saved. <clears throat> but she, it, but if, if she said, you know, my husband is saying that he's a fan of the Dalai Lama, and uh, he is dabbling in uh, Buddhism, something like that, that would give me great concern. But it, it's not a foolproof thing. Um, the reason I'm saying this because, look, it says, they profess to know what? With their mouth. Isn't that important? When a Jehovah Witness comes to me and he's talking to me, and I know, boy, Jehovah Witnesses make the best neighbors you can find. They're not going to steal your rake. They're not going to do anything, for, usually, that's going to be untoward because they're working their way to heaven. But by their mouth, they tell me, oh, you've got to be good. You've got to maintain your salvation. You can lose your salvation. When it comes out of the mouth, then I'm really concerned. Now, maybe they went to a Billy Graham crusade and got saved somewhere at some point. And then some Jehovah Witness came around and swept them off their feet because they didn't know how to handle James chapter 2. Maybe they're saved, but when they're professing all of this garbage that is anti-grace, then I am concerned. They were professing to know God, but their deeds, by their deeds, they deny Him. Look at this, being detestable, underlying that one, and disobedient and worthless for any good deed. And I'm telling you, this is describing you and it's describing me. And that's too heavy a burden to bear for a lot of believers. It's an arrogance. And I'm sure that you wouldn't want to be around when Titus carried out this, uh, these uh, instructions by Paul, what did he say up here? He says uh, they must be silenced. They're upsetting whole families and so forth. And he says, uh, where is it, pure? Where does he say, oh, we repro reprove? What, what verse? 13, okay. Yeah, for this call, reprove them severely that they may be sound in the faith. They were coming out with a bunch of garbage. All of these, dis look at this in the last verse. Disobedient, detestable, and worthless. Rebels causing trouble. 
teaching false doctrine. This is what what believers do. Do unbelievers do that? Yeah, they do it too. But you do not reprove unbelievers so that they will be sound in the faith. But the people who would uphold to that mantra, this is another point. They would say this is certainly showing that these were uh, believe, or were people who professed to know God. They said they were believers, but they weren't believers. Why? Look at the last. They were worthless for any good deed. They weren't doing any good deeds. They were doing just the opposite. You know how important this is? Most people, when you talk about anyone with the subject of going to heaven, what is number one on their hit parade as, as far as them judging whether that person is going to heaven or not? You know what it is. Works. They're looking for works. And you can't tell by works. That's my whole point. I told you about the time when uh, I was working on a job. I was a superintendent on a construction job. We had about ten guys in there right before work, and some guy had, was, a, was a, a serial killer. It was in the news, and they were talking about this serial killer and how uh, he killed all these people. And some guy said, well, I'll tell you one thing. He's sure going to burn in hell. And I said, if he does, it's not because he murdered all those people. <gasps> oh, man. <laughs> you would have think I threw a stink bomb in there. They said, what? I said, of course not. Listen, they got angry. I mean, I think if I wasn't my size and I wasn't the superintendent, I wasn't their boss, I think they would have attacked me. I dare you. What are you talking about? I said, well, Jesus Christ paid for his sins. All sins were taken care of on the cross. Murder? I said, of course. I guess you've never been in a situation like that. Y'all try sometime. It's kind of fun <laughs> if you survive it. That's the way people think. And sometimes it's the shock. It's the shock value that gets their attention. And I could, I could say, you know, they didn't think about Jesus Christ going to the cross and paying for their sins. I think our current memory verse for this month would have been appropriate then, don't you? Uh, yeah, what is it? Second <laughs> Corinthians 5.19 God was in Christ, reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and he's given us the word of reconciliation. If you don't know that, what if you're in a jam and you're in that spot and you don't know that verse? Call my preacher. Yeah, 2 Corinthians 5.19. Most commentaries argue that these passages suggest a false uh, pose and Christian believers as Christian believers and denial of their Christianity in practice. They just cannot swallow that all of these adjectives of disobedient, detestable, and worthless, and rebellious, and stirring up trouble, false teaching, unbelieving. How can that possibly be talking to believers? We understand that we need to be justified by our works before man, don't we? 
that God expects us to be experientially sanctified because we now understand that there are two types of justification, one before God and one before man. And you know what? If you're, just not, if you're not justified before man, God does not take it lightly. That's what James is saying. You're going to die the sin of death. You're going to live a miserable life. You're going to die clinging and kicking and clawing to this life. And then you're going to go to the judgment seat of Christ and you're going to be embarrassed big time because you squandered everything. Everything else was more important to you than your relationship with God and, and His Word. You cannot be experientially sanctified apart from getting the Word. Now, I'm preaching to the choir. You're here. I wish I had some kind of wires that went out to everybody that should be here that's not here. And that is all of Brenham. And just say, you know, wouldn't it be neat if God wired us that way? You're supposed to be in Bible class and you're watching some movie. And I said, oh, I forgot. Better get to Bible class. I'd do away with free will, but it'd be pretty neat. If I was God, I guarantee you I'd have that. That's about as far as your free will would make it. You couldn't enjoy anything. You'd be dreading that. <laughs> okay, well, we're out of time, but I think you're getting the point. We're going to go to other scriptures. Let's see, what's the next one? Matthew 13, 3 through 9. That's going to be a good one. And uh, we're going to I'm going to prove to you through the Scriptures that works, good works, do not come automatically. And this is what this mantra, this is saying up here. We are saved by faith alone, but the faith that saves is never alone. Is, I'm telling you, a crock. It is contradictory, and it's just a way of coming through the back door of salvation by works. And I'm so glad that they are mutually exclusive. You cannot have both. There's two types of justification. If I say that enough, you're going to remember it. The next someone trots James 2 out, or Titus 1.16, or Matthew 13, whatever, wherever they go, you're going to say, oh, well, you know, that's experiential. How many people have ever heard experiential? What's that? Well, we'll continue the fight next time. Let's close. Father, thank you for this time you've given us, the fellowship in your word. We're so thankful that you have given us the keys to unlock the mysteries, as so-called, of your word. And so much of it is done by recognizing the difference between positional and experiential. The Bible comes alive. We start to see that we are no better than unbelievers with regards to sinning. We are saved sinners, and we better get with it and start being justified before man experientially because of our relationship with you and our spiritual growth. We pray that you will help us to inculcate these things into our soul. For we pray it in Christ's name. Amen.